Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book, 1 John. Guests and visitors, if this is your first time with us, we're doing a series of studies in the New Testament, the first letter of John, and in those black Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find 1 John on page 959. I'm going to read for us, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 5 because I think that verses 1 through 5 are a cohesive unit to start out this book slash letter slash maybe a sermon. Um, before I read and dive in, I mentioned last week that I have a single sentence that I think is so deep, so profound, so filled with life and love and purpose and meaning that it will take at minimum four weeks for us to just make sure we understand what it means and how it applies. That sentence is the following. Summarizing these five verses, we proclaim the word of life for the purpose of joy-filled participation in the age to come. We will specifically focus on the word proclaiming and the last line in the age to come in this sermon as it comes from verse 2. So as I read the text, what I want you to be dialing in, focusing on, is how our one-sentence summary talks about proclamation of the word of life and that this life can be participated, shared in, enjoyed, experienced by us in its joyful life in the age to come. And so we're going to have to make sure you understand what all that means. So that's the big idea. Let me read the passage, and then I want to give you a little warning. So passage first. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and an errant word. My prayer is that you will see the word of life, Jesus Christ. Behold him, believe in him, and have life yourself. Amen? Here's the warning. Um, I have two simple questions, but they will not be simple answers. I thought about the sermon like this. During my sabbatical, I had the privilege of spending some time in Arizona and climb the tallest mountain peak in Arizona. It was wonderful. It was one of the high points, pun intended, of the sabbatical. 
while doing a little bit of research to prepare myself for this 3,000-foot hike, five miles each way, I started reading that there's this thing called elevation sickness, which means if you were to fly into Flagstaff, which is where we were staying, from a lower elevation, and then immediately get off the airplane, maybe even that day or the next day, and then start doing your hike, you could get very sick, nauseous, dizzy, because you went from a low elevation to a high elevation in a short matter of time. That picture is our sermon. Two questions with two words that will take us from the heights of heaven to the lowest little nitty-gritty details of your day-to-day life. It will be like we're going up and down super fast sometimes. And I don't mean this to say that, like, hopefully this is an incomprehensible or difficult-to-understand sermon. Just forewarning, two questions. Question number one, what is the message that we proclaim? Answer, the word of life, and second, love. Love, life, life, love. That's question one. Question two, how is this message proclaimed? What is the message we proclaim? It's life and love. How do we proclaim it? How is it proclaimed? And the answer is word and deed. And in both of these cases, life is synonymous with word, which is God, the second person of the triune God, and we will dwell in heaven together today as we answer that we proclaim a message of life, life in Christ, life in God. And the way we proclaim that message is through the word as we verbally and audibly proclaim a actual message that is summed up in the word, Jesus Christ. What do we proclaim? We proclaim a message of life and love. This life transforms us to be people of love. And how do we proclaim it? Through the deeds of love in our life. That's, I think, a good way to summarize and apply verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. The life, referring backwards, referring to the word of life. The word of life, that life, there's actually the word and in between verse 1 and verse 2. The word of life and that life was made manifest, visible, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So what do we proclaim? Clearly, verse 2, if you were to just pick one word, the message we proclaim, it's a message of life. And I believe that that life is meant to be coupled with love, which is what I'll explain in our first point. And the way that it's proclaimed is through the word, the word that's actually audibly preached, and through the deeds of the way that that love is expressed in our actual day-to-day lives. So let's take them one at a time. 
And let's unpack question one. What do we proclaim? We proclaim a message of life and love. This message, verse two says, is life. The life, the word of life, we proclaim to you. And then notice the article, definite article, it's the the word the. The eternal life, there in verse two. We proclaim to you the eternal life. We're proclaiming to you a speech, a message. We're, We're giving a content out of our mouth. And the claim here is that this Life isn't, this message isn't just an interesting tidbit or, or, or a few words. It's, it's actually life itself. It's the source of life. We are proclaiming a message that boldly declares that Jesus Christ is the source of all life and all existence. He is outside of time and space and existence. He is the Beginning one, verse one says, in the beginning, before the beginning, before there was time and space and matter for something to be seen or touched or felt or heard, there was the word of life. And that word of life became physical human life. So this is dizzy if one starts putting this into normal human categories. It doesn't fit into any modern or ancient philosophies. It is alone in its claim amongst all the world religions. We proclaim a message that is unique, a message that says that the creator became a part of the creation, and that life, the source and the place where all of life stems from, actually became alive. And this is what John 1, corresponding with 1 John. So the gospel writer of John, we, I believe, is the same person writing this, and that there's this play between these two things. Listen to these first five verses of John again. We heard this last week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here's the key phrase for today. All things. I believe this is like everything that exists. All things were created and made through the word. And without him, there was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, check this out. In him is life then. And the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ, the message we proclaim, is God. He is God, and he is the source of all life that exists, all creation that exists. Colossians 1 says the same thing. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, whether things in heaven or on earth, whether things that are visible or invisible, whether we're speaking of thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him, all things are being held together. Okay, you exist because God spoke creation into existence ten times, Genesis chapter 1 says, and God said, and then we're told what came about, and it was so, 
And that describes creation. The Father in heaven speaks. He is not the words he speaks, but he is equal to the words he speaks. It has life-giving power. So even on the first page of the Bible, you could read it in a Trinitarian lens in accordance with what John is saying here. God who exists has a person of the Father. And he is not the Son, but when the Father speaks, that word, which is not him, but comes from him, comes from his very being and, and soul. It's like an analogy. That is what created life. That's, what, that's what's being claimed here. It's fantastic. It's mind-blowing. It could make you dizzy if you keep thinking hard about it. But it's more than that. It was not kick-starting creation into existence and then the distant deity, Epicurean god of the ancient philosophers saying he got the world into existence and then left it. Not involved, not intimate, just infinite. Have you heard those two things? The infinite, existing, self-creating, self-existing other God, infinite, also intimate, particular, personal, close to you. Therefore, the Bible doesn't just say in Jesus is the source of all of life. It says that life is being sustained and maintained because of Jesus. You're breathing. Why are you breathing? Because the word, the word of God, the son of God has given you another breath right now. And the moment you take your last breath will be because of his withholding you life. There is destined and appointed every person on this earth a day to die. Hebrews 1 makes this explicit. And many times, and in many ways, this is the first verse in the opening introduction to Hebrews. God spoke through fathers, through prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his S-O-N, through his Son, the Son of God, and he has appointed him as the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Who created the world according to Hebrews 1? Answer, Jesus. The Father spoke, and as he spoke, that speaking agent is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. And therefore, God made everything through his word, and his word is Jesus. But the writer continues. This Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds, he sustains, he gives you breath right now because of his word. That's what I'm referring to when I say that you have life right now, your life, because of Jesus. There are many people, including Christians, that can walk around and act like any day is easily taken for granted. True? Did you wake up this morning and be like, well, of course I was going to wake up this morning. Of course I was going to drive to the church and worship the Lord and, and not get in any car accidents or have a brain aneurysm or have a heart attack. Of course. Don't be so presumptuous. There is a creator and he is the only reason you're alive right now. Humble oneself before this God. One more cross-reference. This one's good. 
Very, very good. All the others have been, I think, excellent, but this is from a sermon in Acts chapter 17 by the Apostle Paul. And listen to these words as he addresses what is known as the Areopagus. He says the following. Starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of worship, I found an altar with an inscription, and it says, To the unknown God. And what therefore you worship is unknown. I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything that is in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples that are made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted the periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like a piece of gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God have been overlooked. The time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What an excellent summary of the question. What is our message that we proclaim? What's the message? Very compact, John says, it's life. The God who gives life. He does not dwell in tents or temples or buildings. He's not confined to this specific space. He is beyond. He has life in and of himself. Did you guys understand what Ryan was reading for us in Exodus chapter 3? And then Nate Fader picked up where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What should I tell them? Your name is God. Moses, go and tell them that my name is I am. I am who I am. What does that mean? It's the verb to be. The verb to I exist. I mean, scratch your head on that. Go tell them that who I am is I am. Tell them that my name should be associated with pure existence. The source of all that is that can possibly exist. This is fundamental for us to understand anything as it relates to the message, the gospel, our lives, the world around us. Brothers and sisters, please be refreshed by the idea that God does not need you. He does not need this building. He does not need a temple. He does not need to be served by us. He exists in his self-existence, in his triune relations with happiness and joy and infinite love with or without you. It's, it's amazing when you realize how non-needy God is compared to your neediness, your, your desperate need for love and affirmation and attention and help and sleep. 
He's, he's the God who never sleeps or slumbers. He always stays awake. He doesn't need a nap. He's not getting tired now as I preach, even if you are. And if you need a nap, take a nap. This God is so other, transcendent, meta, we could say, above physical constraints or limitations or definitions. He just is. And in him, he's not far off. This is where we go from the top of the mountain right down to your day-to-day life. In him, Paul says, we live and move and have our being. He is actually not that far from any of us. How does the infinite majesty of the God who is come down into the particular intimate day-to-day moments of our lives? We know it's his son, Jesus Christ. The word of life, the life giver became part of our life. He knows, he's intimate. He has experienced every temptation, every trial, every kind of category of what human experience is like from the infant in the, wo- in the, in the womb to the man who dies on a cross and is buried in the tomb. The full range of human experience, Jesus, the word of life, the giver of life, he knows. Do you take comfort in that? I do. Do you know that when he says in the scriptures in Hebrews that he sympathizes with your sorrows, he knows sorrow. He knows the feeling of weeping and losing a loved one and being reminded of that. He knows infinite intimate, life eternal to love. In fact, the reason I chose the word love is because John makes this link for us in his gospel, in this, in this book, 1 John. The only other place where the word manifest is used, verse 2, and then now let's link that, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And notice the interchange between the visible manifestation of life in Jesus Christ is the demonstration of God's message, which is defined with one single word, love. If God wants to speak through Jesus, how would you summarize it in a word? I've chosen, based on 1 John 4, he has made his message, his content of communication, clear through a person, and that person has communicated God's love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this love of God, in this, the love of God was made manifest. There's our key linking word. The manifestation of the communication of God's word is the love of sending his only son into the world so that you would live through him. Let's pause there. I want to keep reading, but I want to pause there. Here's here's for your theological and personal immediate application. I grew up with this basic summary of the Bible and the gospel, and I'm curious if any of you resonate with this. If this is not your personal experience, 
maybe that's for the better. Here's what it was. God made the world. We sinned. And because of that sin, I'm going to go to hell. I'm, I'm going to be judged based on my sin. God sent his son, Jesus, because he loves the world. God sent his son. So that if you would believe in Jesus, you could have eternal life. And eternal life has been understood to mean go to heaven when I die. So here's my, what I believe, truncated, immature, not necessarily 100% false, but understanding of the gospel. The creator God made a world. It was good. We sinned. God sent his son, Jesus, and through his life and death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, ascension, Holy Spirit, all of that stuff, it's going to help me escape from hell when I die. I think that's true. That's not what John's talking about. Let's read the text, verse 9. The love of God was made visible, manifest. It appeared among us when God sent his only son into the world. For what purpose? So that you would live through him, in the son, with the son, in fellowship with the son, now and forever. The gospel message is not a secret password prayer to get out of hell free card like playing Monopoly. Whew, good thing I came to that church that one day where they said, if you want to not go to hell, pray this prayer, and then you got a ticket and a baptism that gets you out of hell for the rest of your life. That's, that's so dumbed down, watered down, and truncated, the actual thing that we see right in front of us in the text. The love of God is becoming visible. The message of who God is and his existence can be summarized in the love that was sent to us by Jesus Christ so that we would live in him. Keep reading. Verse 10. So that you would live in him in a life of love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate the love of God so that, beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, ought we not to love one another? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is being perfected in us. We ought to proclaim a message that does not just say, doesn't matter really what you do or how you live or whether or not the love of God is in you and that is demonstrated in your life on a day-to-day basis. We proclaim a message that the God who created everything is none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ created everything and sustains everything And he has demonstrated that his message can be summarized as love. Love for you so much so that he would give his life for you. Not so that you could say, great, now that we got the heaven and hell thing taken care of, moving on, let me do whatever I want to do with the rest of my life. So that through the receiving of this, you would actually start to have life for the first time. New life. Be born again. New heart. New loves new desires, which brings us to our second question, doesn't it? 
how do we proclaim this message? If the message is life, the existence and source of life, and then that life can be summarized as a life filled with love, that that would be the best way to live in the world is love. Isn't that what Jesus said? What are the greatest commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. That sums it up. So life and love, life and love are the same thing. And Jesus embodied that through his life, through his self-sacrificial death on the cross. And because he came and loved us, we then are being transformed through word and deed. Through the proclamation of this message and through the deeds that we live out as we believe and receive this message. So turn your eyes back to verse 2. Notice that proclamation in the most simple of sense is in fact audibly speaking, preaching, teaching, talking, and that even the word, word, logos, the word of life, is a, is a message. It's a message that can be preached, and it's a message that's centered around a person. And I believe John is doing both of those things. He is saying, here's the message that you preach, and that message isn't just some content or series of propositions. That message is a person. And any propositional preaching should point you to a person. Part of the reason why Embassy Church is committed to not just preaching the Word of God, but that we believe that the Word of God points us to the person of God. And you should have an encounter and engage with none other than God himself as you encounter his Word. Sure, there's history, poetry, art, beauty, but the Word is a message of life and love, and that as you're reading it, as you're studying it, it hits the, the soul and the heart and transforms. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And then here's an important word. Testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Notice that John links testifying and proclaiming. We testify and we proclaim. And our testifying is the word that could also be translated as witness. We give witness to. I think this has a double meaning because John is a master at double meanings. A, John is saying we, the apostles, are eyewitness testimonies testifying to the historical reliability that God became a human. And then he died on a cross and he rose again and we touched him. We touched a resurrected man. And that should make a lot of people go, what? And it's like, it wasn't just me. It's not just like a few guys in a dark alley that touched Jesus and no one else saw him. He appeared to hundreds of people. It's a fact. Again, compare that with philosophy. Compare that with world religions aside from the Christian faith. They're private. They're hidden. They're in dark corners. They're in caves. They're in a secret backyard revelation that comes. That's Joseph Smith, for example, in the Book of Mormon. Can anybody verify that an angel came from heaven and gave Joseph Smith these golden tablets? No. Can anybody verify with eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ died on a cross and then rose again three days later and lived? Absolutely. So this is what he means. We testified. We are eyewitness testimonies. That's like the highest verdict 
to determine the highest reason to give to determine a verdict in a court case, right? If you're saying, I saw it this way, and then a second witness comes along, I saw it the same way. Third witness, fourth witness, fifth witness, and you start getting to dozens, to thousands of witnesses verifying we saw the same thing. It's one of the reasons why specific people are mentioned by name in the writings of the Gospels. Why are there sometimes these random names? You have no idea who these people are. Because they were witnesses. Second meaning of witness. That their lives are bearing testimony and witness to the life-transforming, love-empowering truth of the Gospel. So, here we are today. I believe none of you have been eyewitnesses of the risen, resurrected Jesus. If you have been, I'd be very interested to hear your story. But all of us, I think, can be martus. It's where we get the word martyr from. Witnesses. We can testify that A, we believe it's historically, verifiably accurate. This is truth. This is objective reality. You can use reason and the the sciences of nature to say, can I prove yes or no that Jesus rose again from the dead? But there's also a life-transforming faith that changes one's heart, where the word flows out in deeds of love. And this is why Jesus taught that when the Spirit of God comes, you will know that they are my disciples by their love. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 18, and see this explicit relationship between the message we proclaim and this transformation to love to our brothers and sisters. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Pause. Do you see the connection I'm making between the message that we are believing, proclaiming, valuing as a church is a message of life and love. And we know that we have been passed out of death and into life because of our love. Therefore, we can give testimony and witness. If you do not love, then you're abiding in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This This is a great summation. This passage I just read to you, 1 John 3, 11 to 18. The message is life and love. And the way that we proclaim it is with words and deeds. You you can't proclaim and explain the gospel with just your life. It's impossible. 
Faith comes from hearing the proclaimed message of truth about the infinite creator God becoming a part of the intimate created universe. Have you ever loved somebody and then that fully explained what I just said? Like, oh, I gave someone a cup of cold water and loved them. That proclaimed the infinite God into the intimate universe. No, no, that, that takes explaining, preaching. You guys know the famous quote? Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you heard this one? It's nonsense. The only way to preach the gospel is with words. The gospel is a word. It's a message. But if you think that it's a word that you hear, you download into your brain, and it's all just kind of mental stuff, and then you say, yep, that's factually true. I believe that. And then you move on with your life. Nothing changes. There's no love in your heart. You still hate your brothers and sisters. There's no change in your soul at all. You're not a child of God. That's First John in a nutshell. The message we proclaim is testified by the love of those who have repented and believed. It makes common sense, actually. If we believe that the message about the entire universe is summarized by the life-giving source of ultimate reality, which can be summarized in this amazing word, love, and you say, yeah, that's what I believe. I believe that to be true. And then you live as if that's not true. That's like me saying, guys, I have just been informed from the Palatine police that at any moment, there will be a massive terrorist attack on downtown Palatine. It will be coming in roughly three minutes. And then I say, I believe this with all of my heart. It's coming. And then I sit here and act like everything's the same. All of you would think, I don't really believe this guy. I don't think he really believes what he says he believes. The gospel is about love and life. And if you're saying, I believe that Jesus Christ has the source for not only physical existence, but the true meaning and definition of life and love and happiness and eternal infinite joy. And then you go on to the rest of your life acting like I'm going to find life and love and meaning in created things. Then there's something wrong. And 1 John is trying to help us see those two things can't coexist together. You either really believe that he rose again from the dead. And you are actively repenting of your sin, hating it, turning from it. It does not mean you can't ever sin again. Oh, see, you sinned. First John is going to say, those who make a practice of sinning as if like they're defined and their identity is wrapped up in the anti-gospel of non-love and murder and hatred toward one's neighbor. So, this is the message. It's life. It's love. It is proclaimed through word and deed. To conclude, the phrase eternal life, I think summarizes all of this. Because if we accurately and precisely understand eternal life, we will understand why I have chosen as our big idea life unto the age. Eternal life is joy-filled 
participation in the age to come. The words specifically that make up the phrase eternal life are age and life. So, 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the age of life. The whole Bible can be summarized like this. In the beginning, God made a garden, and that garden was the dwelling place for God and man. In the center of that garden stood a tree that represented life. That tree represents the source of life. It symbolizes everything we've been talking about, life and love, the fullness of what life could be in this created world. Access to the tree of life was available for every human if the fruitful multiplication of Adam and Eve would be to obey God's definition of good and bad. Humans decided, I think we can figure it out on our own. What is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is evil? That then removed them from the access of the tree of life. No longer was there the opportunity for constant, eternal life. Therefore, the Bible story has two timelines. I have two hands in front of me. Visually, look, this is sometimes confusing. First, there is the timeline of the present evil age. That is what came into existence when sin entered the world and humans were removed from the tree of life, the present evil age. So think of a starting point, creation, and think the timeline, and guess what? You and I, we're still living in the present evil age. The Bible has a second timeline that is not opposite to or only in the future. It is the timeline of the age to come that enters into the middle of the present evil age through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the resurrection of the dead was the confirmation that this new age, like being in the darkness of a dark night and then the sun bursts in the morning and light came into the world, that is what John is declaring when he says, this life is the light of a new creation, a new age, a new time, a new existence, a new possibility of what life could be even in the present evil age. John tells us that this world and all of its desires, this is 1 John 2, it's passing away. Soon this one will go away altogether. And all that will remain are those who are in Christ by faith, transformed by his message of life and love, and they will be in the tree of life forever. Amen? Except the key detail that John does not miss is that Jesus Christ entered into this world with all of its darkness and all of its death and all of its hatred and he hung on a tree of death. That was the pivot moment of all of human history and all of infinite eternal history. When the God-man took on human flesh 
and became the propitiation for our sins to demonstrate the love of God that he gave himself for us so that if you would repent of your sin, believe in him and realize that he absorbed for us all of the punishment and condemnation and wrath and everything else that you could imagine on the cross. Complete darkness covered over him. He was buried into a tomb and then when that stone rolled away, light burst forth, not just in his particular human body, but in all of time and existence. A new day has dawned. So just like my little example, if the Palatine police came and said, guys, guess what? There's going to be this terrible attack. Run, head to your cars, get out as fast as you can. If you believed it, and you're like, that's true. I believe the testimony of those witnesses. There's good reason to believe. Let's go. In a much more profound and important way, there is a testimony of eyewitnesses, not just in the first century, many, many years ago, but through the ages, that there is a message and a person of life and love that when it's received, it transforms, it leads death to oneself and self-sacrificial love to one's neighbor and wife and children and church community and the entire world. This overwhelming, infinite love being poured into the reciprocals of this human body, transforming us to word and deed, proclamation and life, the way we live, giving testimony and witness. And I hope and pray for us that this Christmas season we will see that God, in the person of Christ, demonstrated for us love so that we could have life unto the age, life in this new day that has already dawned, and not simplify, truncate, and water down. Well, one day when we die, we'll go to heaven. Heaven, in that sense, it's here and available right now. New life, new kind of heart, new kind of community. Let's receive it, believe it. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to now, in the name of Jesus, in the fullness of the message of the gospel, we want to pray for the Holy Spirit to do the work of confirming the words that were just spoken as the most important truths that have been uttered by any human or have been written on any page or have ever been recorded in human history. We pray, God, that the weightiness of the cross, the profound depth and meaning and beauty of the gospel would rightly be felt and known. We pray for repentance. We pray for faith. We pray that we would look upon Jesus. We would see him for all that he is and all that he claims to be and all that Christians through the ages have believed him to be. And then we would trust him. We would trust him as the source of not just physical existence in life, but the meaning and purpose of our life that he accurately defined what our obligations should be, and that is love. God, make us people of love. Make us people that love others and you more than we love ourselves. Free us from the tyranny of our slavery of selfishness, 
Set us free so that we would be finally the kind of people you made us in the first place to live and move and have our being on this earth. Reinstate us in your love, as we sang earlier. In Jesus' name, amen.